Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelly. This is The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. It is indeed, and it's also the final episode of The Wrap Up for Season 6. So, Kelly, what do we have in store today? So sad that it's the last one for the season, but, you know, as always, we've got some really important news stories from around the world, and also a nice little quirky story to wrap up the episode. Very, very nice. Well, stick around for that final story. In fact, stick around for them all. Here we go. And it's been exactly one year since Israel's coalition government was formed on the 13th of June 2021, while many, including the former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, predicted the coalition's imminent downfall. It's still going, though hanging on by a thread. Kelly, as you just heard there, our first story takes place in Israel. Now, even at the best of times, Israeli politics is often messy and unpredictable but recent events have made it even more chaotic. Last week marked one year since Israel's controversial Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was thrown out of office amid allegations of corruption. Israel is ushering in a new political era after Parliament voted in a coalition government, ending the 12-year rule of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. At the time, eight opposition parties united to form an alternative coalition government. This is big news in Israel, a momentous day. It appears that there is a new dawn for Israel. However, that coalition government now looks like it's about to crumble, and that could allow Benjamin Netanyahu to again become prime minister, possibly within a matter of weeks. You've got to be kidding. Isn't Netanyahu's reputation in tatters? I thought he was facing criminal charges. Yeah, well, he indeed actually is facing criminal charges. But as you'll see, it seems that in Israeli politics, anything is possible. So while there is a huge cloud over Netanyahu's reputation, that's actually not out of the ordinary for him. He's been a highly controversial politician from the beginning. When he was first elected PM in 1996, he was almost immediately accused of misusing public funds and accepting bribes. The country cannot afford a prime minister who contravenes the basic constitutional and democratic character of the state of Israel. As a result, he was voted out of office in 1999. But he managed to rebuild his image, and 10 years later, in 2009, he was elected PM again. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party has won what's being called a stunning re-election victory. He went on to govern Israel for the next 12 years, making him the longest serving PM in Israeli history. But his second stint in office was also marred by allegations of corruption. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been questioned by police over allegations that he broke the law by accepting gifts from wealthy foreign and Israeli businessmen. In 2019, he was charged with criminal offences, including deception, fraud, breach of trust, and even bribery. However, he denied the allegations, refused to step down, and accused the courts of bias. That's quite a lot there for Netanyahu. 
It is pretty awful stuff, but believe it or not, it doesn't end there. In a separate defamation trial that's currently occurring, evidence has come to light that Netanyahu, his wife Sarah, and their children behaved pretty terribly while he was PM. They include stories about strip clubs, sex workers, uncontrolled tantrums, and paranoia. It's also alleged Netanyahu's family interfered in national decision-making and even tried to embarrass each other in official meetings. Wow. So how much of this behavior was known by members of Netanyahu's party at the time? Well, apparently it was a bit of an open secret, and it's part of the reason why, in 2019, members of his government rebelled against him, depriving him of a majority in the 120-seat Knesset. A former Netanyahu aide and right-wing hardliner, Naftali Bennett, says he's looking to form a diverse minority government, one that potentially avoids another round of elections in Israel and sees the end of the Netanyahu era. Instead, eight opposition parties managed to form a coalition government that ousted Netanyahu from power by a single vote, 60 to 59, with one MP abstaining. However, even though Netanyahu was no longer PM, he remained in parliament and is currently the leader of the opposition. So you've said that there is some trouble for the new coalition government. What's happening now to them? Well, as I'm sure you can imagine, things were pretty tough from the get-go. I mean, these eight parties in the coalition couldn't have been any more different. Spanning hard left to hard right, secular and religious, Jewish and Islamist, the coalition began... The only thing that united them was their desire to get rid of Netanyahu. And now that they'd achieved that, the divisions began to resurface. And in recent weeks, that's led to two prominent MPs resigning from the government, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, if you do the maths, leaves them without a majority. So what happens now? Does this mean a new election for Israel, which would be the fifth in three years? Look, it's unclear. The parliament could vote to trigger a new election, but as I'm sure you can imagine, with four elections previously, there's not a lot of appetite for that. Instead, it's very likely that Netanyahu's opposition party, which has 59 seats, could lure a few right-wing MPs to his side, enabling them to form a majority. And analysts are warning that if Netanyahu succeeds in doing that, it could lead to one of the most right-wing governments in Israeli history. And that could in turn have three possible consequences. First, it would likely heighten growing political partisanship in Israel. A hard-right government led by Netanyahu is likely to anger a significant proportion of Israelis who feel unrepresented by it. Second, Netanyahu's return could also have direct ramifications for the corruption proceedings. It would give him the power to potentially undermine the prosecution. And third, Netanyahu's promise to continue cracking down on Palestinians and on Iran, and that could cause tension with the US as it goes against a lot of Joe Biden's policies. So, overall, the return of Netanyahu could have significant ramifications for Israel, the region, and the rest of the world. So, when can we expect a decision? Well, it's expected that a vote will be held in the Knesset sometime during the next fortnight. So, 
Subscribe to updates in your favorite news app and check your feeds regularly because the situation is changing daily. The British government insists it'll carry on with its plan to send unwanted asylum seekers to Rwanda despite widespread criticism. The UK wants to prevent migrants coming to its shores through unauthorized routes. So it's threatening any such potential arrivals that they'll be expelled to Rwanda. Josh, have you heard about the controversial deal to send asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda? Yeah, Kelly, look, I have heard about it. But tell me a bit more. What is it and what's the strategy behind it? Well, it's Britain's new flagship immigration policy. And it's really their attempt to toughen their stance on asylum seekers coming to the UK from Europe. In Prime Minister Boris Johnson's speech announcing the plan, he justified the deal as being necessary to dissuade economic migrants who are supposedly taking advantage of the asylum system. The deal we've done is uncapped and Rwanda will have the capacity to resettle tens of thousands of people in the years ahead. Britain has paid £120 million into a so-called Economic Transformation and Integration Fund and will pay for the operational costs of getting asylum seekers to Rwanda. Rwanda will then take on the responsibility of processing their asylum claims. Hmm, this method of shipping out asylum seekers to developing nations sounds very familiar. In fact, it seems actually quite similar to our offshore detention policy here in Australia. Well, it's certainly inspired by it, but actually quite different. An offshore detention policy like Australia's is essentially a government outsourcing the asylum processing. What the UK is trying to do is actually export its asylum responsibilities, and no other country in the world has attempted this before. Any asylum seeker that arrives to the UK via an illegal route will have immediately committed an offence and be deported to Rwanda. Rwanda will then house them, assess their asylum claims, and then decide on whether to grant or reject refugee status. Wow. So in light of that, in light of the fact that this has never been done before, I imagine the plan's been quite controversial. Very controversial, Josh. The plan has unsurprisingly faced legal challenges from human rights groups and lawyers for the individual deportees, but they haven't had much success in the UK courts so far. Hope of an 11th hour reprieve dashed. Tomorrow, seven asylum seekers who hope for a better life in the UK will instead be sent to Rwanda. Appeal court judges ruling that a flight taking them to Kigali can now set off. And despite one of the justifications for the plan being deterrence, asylum seekers were still arriving across the channel as the plane was set to depart. Yesterday, the government say 444 asylum seekers arrived along the Kent coastline, the highest daily figure since its new policy was announced. But late in the day, as the first seven asylum seekers were sitting on the tarmac ready to depart, the European Court of Human Rights prevented the UK from deporting one of the asylum seekers. The UK has cancelled its first deportation flight to Rwanda, which was set to take off on Tuesday evening. 
The flight was canceled after the European Court of Human Rights intervened, ruling that asylum seekers could face a real risk of irreversible harm if they were sent there. Wait, how come the European Court of Human Rights has jurisdiction over the UK? I mean, didn't the UK leave the European Union? Yes, it did, of course, but the European Court of Human Rights is part of a separate organisation called the Council of Europe. Any individual, NGO or country can submit a complaint to the court about a contravention of this instrument called the European Convention of Human Rights, which predates the European Union. When Brexit happened, the UK didn't leave the Council of Europe and is still a signatory to the convention. So the court still has binding power over the UK. Right. Okay. So how did Boris Johnson, who, let's be honest, doesn't have a great relationship with European institutions, respond to this development? Good question, Josh. And he responded quite unhelpfully. Uh, My message to everybody today is that we are not going to be in any way Uh, deterred or abashed by some of the criticism that is being directed upon this. Him and the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, have insisted that the next plane is going ahead and have even threatened to leave the convention. But how are they going to go ahead with the plan if the court has already prevented the first plane from taking off? So it's important to note that the court didn't say that the plan or the new laws coming out of the plan are illegal. Instead, the court has ordered UK authorities not to remove one of the asylum seekers for at least three weeks. This is because their individual court challenges are still ongoing in UK and European courts, and the Court of Human Rights thought that they should be given more time to consider the individual cases. There are some cases uh, that still have to come before court, uh, including a judicial review. That'll be here in the UK. Uh, That's when the the UK government's decision and uh, legal reasons behind it are examined more. Whether the Rwanda deal operates as planned will be really critical for the future of refugee policy across the world. The UK is really creating precedent here for other rich refugee receiving countries. Since the announcement, for example, Denmark has announced that it's negotiating a similar deal in East Africa. So whatever happens next could make or break the international norms and laws on refugee protection and human rights that were established after World War II. It's been called the death of Cambodia's democracy. A court in the capital, Phnom Penh, has jailed dozens of opposition figures. They were convicted of conspiring to commit treason. Rights groups say the entire process was a sham, accusing longtime leader Hun Sen of using the mass trial to crack down on dissent and hold on to power. Kelly, as you just heard there, there's been some pretty grim developments in Cambodia over the last few days. On Thursday last week, around 60 opposition figures were convicted of treason and jailed for up to eight years. Those sentences are part of an ongoing crackdown ordered by Cambodia's authoritarian Prime Minister, Hun Sen. Sen has effectively turned Cambodia into a one-party state by arresting and prosecuting his critics. This trial appears to be his latest attempt to stamp out any remaining opposition. Over the last few decades, he has single-handedly transformed Cambodia from an emerging democracy 
into effectively what is now a dictatorship. And now, with most opposition figures jailed or forced into exile, it appears that Hun Sen is taking steps to ensure his family will rule Cambodia for decades to come. So who is Hun Sen, and how did he manage to seize so much power? Well, he's the longest-serving PM in Asia, and he's ruled the country continuously since 1985. So that's a total of 37 years. And get this, the median age in Cambodia is 25 years old, which means that for most Cambodians, Hun Sen is the only leader they've ever known. Now, to understand how he came to power, you've got to rewind back to the 1970s, which is when the Khmer Rouge was in power. On April the 17th, 1975, the Khmer Rouge forces swept into the capital. Few Cambodians and fewer outsiders could possibly have imagined what was to follow. The Khmer Rouge was a brutal communist regime that ordered the execution of roughly two million Cambodian people in just three years. City dwellers were marched into the country. Currency was abolished. Anyone with an education was considered a threat. People died of starvation. Soldiers tortured and killed anyone suspected of being disloyal. The regime was eventually overthrown, but only after Vietnam invaded Cambodia and set up a new communist government. Hun Sen, who was loyal to the Vietnamese troops, became prime minister at the age of 33. A few years later, the UN intervened and replaced the Vietnamese-backed regime with an internationally supported democratic government. And two co-prime ministers were appointed, one of whom, funnily enough, was Hun Sen. And for a while, everything seemed to be going well. Cambodia looked like it was transitioning towards a democracy, as the UN had hoped. But in 1997, everything changed. Second Prime Minister Hun Sen seized control in a July coup d'etat, resulting in opponents making a quick exit and a country without much credibility. Out of the blue, Hun Sen launched a coup and seized sole control over the government and then executed rival politicians. Since then, he's continued to consolidate his power through mass imprisonment, exile, vote rigging and assassinations. So this all happened 25 years ago. What is different about the latest crackdown? The most recent crackdown has really been focused on eliminating every remaining limit on his power. So he's seized control of the courts, he's closed media outlets, he's implemented nationwide internet censorship and outlawed opposition parties. As a result, his political party now controls every seat in Cambodia's parliament. He's also prosecuted his most prominent critics in mass trials, and the verdicts last week were the culmination of that process. So now that Hun Sen has effectively consolidated his power, what does the future look like for Cambodia? Well, Hun Sen has said that he will stay in power until 2028, and after that, he'll hand over the prime ministership to his son. So unless there's a major change, it looks as if Cambodia will be ruled by his family for some time to come. And that has significant regional consequences. Hun Sen and his family are closely allied with China. In fact, some people have said that Cambodia is now really just a client state of China, joining countries like Laos and Myanmar, 
which largely do Xi Jinping's bidding. Yet again, this illustrates a trend that we've commented on repeatedly in recent seasons of The Wrap-Up and also in our in-depth episodes. That is, the rise of autocracy, as illustrated by China, and the corresponding decline of democracy around the world. And in many ways, this is the story of the 21st century, and it's likely to shape the way that our lives will look in the coming decades. Do you know the one about the Dane and the Canadian arguing about a rock and a hard place? It's the most civilised conflict in the world. Um, what they do is they both... All right, Josh, here is my promised fun little story and possibly one of the more bizarre stories we've told on the wrap-up. What do you know about the Whiskey War? Uh, look, Kelly, I'll be honest with you. I've heard of quite a few wars, but the Whiskey War is entirely unfamiliar to me. You know what, Josh? I'm honestly a little bit shocked. It's been going on for 50 years, and it concerns a dispute over a barren and uninhabited island in the Arctic that is 1.2 square kilometers large. <laughs> and here I was hoping, Kelly, that you're about to tell me it was all about whiskey. But it sounds fascinating, though. So how come such a small island is responsible for a 50-year-long war? Look, okay, maybe I was exaggerating earlier. War is a very generous and somewhat satirical term for this dispute. It's a good-natured squabble, let's say, between Denmark and Canada over Hans Island, which is halfway between Greenland and Canada's Ellesmere Island. And although the island has no practical or strategic value, both countries have continued to claim ownership over it. It's really odd because there's nothing. It's worthless. There's no minerals. There is no oil in the waters next to it. And then in 1978, a really bizarre ritual began. The Canadian Armed Forces planted their flag and left behind Canadian whiskey. The Danish replaced it with schnapps and on it went. And that's happened continuously. The Canadian Armed Forces visit the island, raise the Canadian flag, and plant a bottle of Canadian whiskey and a sign that says, Welcome to Canada. Then the Danish Armed Forces arrive, remove the Canadian flag and whiskey, and replace it with the Danish flag and a bottle of schnapps. Look, let's be honest, if only all wars were that genteel and civilised. Ah yes, one can only hope. And I think it's quite a lovely note to end on. As the Canadian Foreign Minister said, it shows that disagreements can be resolved without the need for guns and violence, which was, of course, a coded swipe at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So where do things stand at now in the dispute? Well, it's quite dramatic, to be honest, Josh. Last week, both countries finally agreed to split the island in half, after many years, it will be split between the countries, creating Canada's newest and only other land border outside of the U.S. That's right, we have a land border with Greenland now. And while that may sound like a simple solution, it really wasn't easy getting there. Canada and Denmark had to establish a working group in 2005 to figure out how to split up the 1.2 square kilometres of uninhabited land. And when the Canadian Defence Minister visited the island and symbolically walked on it, Denmark even summoned the Canadian ambassador to explain. 
In the end, it took 17 years of diplomatic negotiations to reach a resolution. And I think that shows two things. Even with the best intentions, international relations can be slow and agonizing. And sometimes a whiskey bottle or two may help smooth things along. <laughs> oh, what a great story, Kelly. And you're right. Look, it's a nice way to finish up the wrap up. It's definitely a relief to talk about one good news story after all of the chaos we've reported on during the last three months. Absolutely. But for all of you listening out there, while the wrap up is ending, there's still a few more episodes left in season six. Next week will be the final instalment in our in depth season on technology. Rhiannon will be focusing on the digital divide. How technology is both solving and aggravating inequality around the globe. So, if you missed Josh and I, please follow us on our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also see our faces on there. All the links are in the episode description. From both of us here at Global Questions, thanks for listening to the wrap up this season. We've certainly enjoyed sharing with you the most important and intriguing news stories from around the world. And hopefully, you've enjoyed listening to both of us geek out over it. Until next time, bye. <laughs>